Father, I pray right now that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would work and move in our midst, stirring us up to hear from you. Thank you for the gift of your word, which encourages us and challenges us, both cuts us and heals us at the same time. And I pray that you would stir us up this morning. I pray that you would help each one of us to hear what we need to hear from you. And I pray that we would learn more about this great letter that you have given us from the pen of your servant, the Apostle Paul, a slave of Jesus, saved for a purpose, just like we are, to make you know. Thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so this morning we are continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. His second of four letters to the church at Corinth. We have two of them. We don't have the other two. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last week. Um, and so God didn't see fit to have us uh, use those other two letters. But we have first and second Corinthians, which are really third, second and fourth Corinthians. Very interesting. Um, we'll talk more about that in days to come as we see Paul referencing former letters in this letter called 1 Corinthians. This morning we're going to be in chapter 1, and we are still going to be looking at Paul's greeting to the Corinthian church. We'll be in verses 4 to 9. Now last week, you may remember, one of the things that we focused on was that this letter... This letter called 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians, it addresses 10 things, 10 things that the Corinthians were dealing with in their midst. Some of them were sins that they had fallen into, or false teaching that they were starting to listen to, like Christians aren't raised from the dead. Um, and then some of the things Paul addresses, some of those ten topics, are things that they wrote him a letter about, saying, Ah, dear Paul, help. What do we do with this issue or that issue? And so Corinthians is a very practical letter. Ten topics. I'm going to run over them again really quick. This summary um, is a summary, this summary of the ten topics is a summary written by one of my former professors, Andy Nacelli, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. And so I just want to give him credit. I think this is a very helpful little summary. So I'll just read it for you. First, the topic is, why is it sinful for a church to be divided over church leaders? So that's the main burden of chapters 1 to 4. Why is it sinful for churches to split unity over church leaders? Second, um, when and why should a church excommunicate or cut off somebody that's professing faith in Jesus? That's chapter 5. The third thing is, in chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, why is it wrong for a believer to bring a lawsuit against another believer? And is there ever a case when it's okay? So we'll be talking about that in chapter 6. The fourth issue is, should a Christian commit sexual immorality? Does it matter what you do with your body? That's chapter 6 and the end of the chapter. The fifth topic, 
in chapter 7 is all sorts of questions about marriage and divorce and singleness and sex in marriage. The sixth topic in chapters 8 to 10 is about eating food sacrificed to idols. Is it okay? Is it not? The eighth topic in chapter 11 is how to treat the Lord's Supper. Oh, and I, I skipped the seventh one also in chapter 11. Should women wear head coverings to church? Should men cover their heads while they pray? What's that all about? How cultural is that or not? Churches still disagree today on that. What does Paul mean? So the top will tackle that in chapter 11. And eight, people are getting drunk while they're taking the Lord's Supper. Um, and there's some other issues going on. So how to properly administer the Lord's Supper. That's chapter 11. The ninth topic he covers, should we desire to speak in tongues and to prophesy? What are spiritual gifts and how should we use them in the church? That's a big chunk, chapter 12 to 14. And the tenth topic is chapter 15, one of the greatest chapters of the New Testament is on the resurrection. Apparently there was some false teachers denying that Christians would raise from the dead. <coughs> Paul says, look, if you deny the resurrection, go party. Go live life however you want. Eat and drink. Tomorrow you die. Christianity is worthless if there's no resurrection. So, that's chapter 15. And again, there's ten topics. So, if you just want to put your arms around the book of 1 Corinthians and, and remember, what is 1 Corinthians about? Ten topics that the Apostle Paul addresses the church with. And as I said last week, this church was very broken. And Paul writes this letter with each topic. He wants to help them bring their church and their lives under the lordship of Jesus. So every aspect of their life together, he wants them to bring under Jesus' lordship so that they as a church would grow in unity, togetherness, under the lordship of Jesus, and in moral purity as a church under the lordship of Jesus. And so every topic... Paul relates his answer to each topic to Jesus and the good news about Jesus in some way. So there's a sense in which the answer to every topic that we're going to cover in these ten topics, the answer to every topic is the good news about Jesus in some way. It's, he makes a beeline to the gospel every time. The gospel is everything to Paul, the good news about Jesus. And yet... This church had drifted far afield. And yet what we saw last week is that Paul still calls them saints. To the saints in Corinth. And even though there were issues in this church that broke his heart and even made him weep tears that we'll see in coming days, Paul starts his letter this way. Look at verse 4. I always thank my God for the grace given to you. So we'll dive right into those verses together. Verses 4 to 9. Paul writes, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. 
For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift, any grace gift, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end. Why? So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's three things that I want to point out from these verses this morning. Three things that flow right from these passages. Okay? First, Paul... Thanks God, because this broken church that he's writing to, this messed up church, is a graced church. They have received the grace of God. He's seen it. He knows it. Paul has been at this long enough that he knows what grace of God, the grace of God, the gift of God, which is ultimately Christ, looks like when Christ is at work. Paul knows when grace, God's gift, is at work. Jesus is at work. Second, so the Grace Church, Paul thanks God because this church, look at verse 8, is a kept church. They are a graced church. When he thinks about the Corinthians, he thinks grace. They have received grace. Second, when he thinks about the Corinthians and he's just filled with fear, like, are they going to make it? They are a kept church. Verse 8, kept by God. And third, how I know that God is going to keep them the God who graced them is going to keep them. Verse 9, he is a faithful God. He's trustworthy. You can trust him. They've been called by a faithful God. So the graced church, the kept church, and the church that is called by a faithful God. So, main idea, Paul gives thanks. Okay, if you write a main idea, what is the point of these verses? Paul gives thanks to a faithful God who graces and keeps his church. So point one, the graced church. Verses four to seven. What does this grace look like? Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace. Grace is a word that means gift at its very core. His gift, his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. So what is the gift? The gift is Christ. Christ is the sum of God's gift to them. For in Christ, everything comes to you. You've been enriched in every way. If you have Jesus, you have all of God's blessings. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Verse 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. How do we know that when we testify to Jesus in your midst that it was... The real deal, because when we preached about Jesus, things happened. Lives were changed. God confirmed our testimony because the grace of Jesus fell upon you and you followed him. Jesus is real. The testimony was confirmed. Verse 6. Therefore, because you've experienced this grace and this grace was real, therefore you don't lack any spiritual gift talk about this a minute. The word there is grace. Again, you don't lack any grace, any grace gift, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So, 
after everything you know, we've, we've covered, the Corinthians are listening to this letter for the first time, imagine, but you know something these first readers hadn't experienced yet as they're listening to this letter. We've done the big flyover. You know everything that was wrong with this church. All the brokenness, the sin that's being tolerated in their midst, the false teaching. And yet, Paul thanks God for them. Does that surprise you a little bit? I mean, last week we noticed how he calls them saints. Those who have been claimed and cleansed and called by God. Now he thanks God for them. And in the three things that God thinks, that Paul thinks God for about them, all three primarily have to do with the actions of God embracing the, first, the Corinthians. So first, in verse 4, he's given them his grace, his gift in Christ Jesus. They are a graced church. God's grace to them is ultimately the free gift of Jesus Christ to his church. And with Jesus, everything that comes with Jesus, by the power of Jesus' spirit. So this grace church, who has received the gracious and free gift of Jesus, they have been graciously enriched by the spirit of Jesus. The, the word enriched here is just the idea, you're, you're being made wealthy. They have become wealthy because of God's grace to them. Christ. You think Paul's talking about money here? You become wealthy. Corinthians. You think you might be poor? You're a wealthy people. Enriched. In every way, he says. In all things. Not though in money. He goes on to clarify. In every way that matters, they've been enriched. Because they've been enriched literally in word and knowledge. Speech, your translation might have, but it's literally just, you've been enriched in word and in knowledge. You know the word, and you have knowledge. And they don't lack anything. They don't lack any grace gift. It's not, the Corinthian church can't stand there and say, we haven't, God has been, God's holding out on us. He hasn't given us enough grace, any grace gift. Spiritual gift is what your translations might have. That's an okay translation. We'll be covering that heavily in chapters 12 to 14. Grace gift is literally what that word means. If you were to just do a blunt translation of a grace gift. You're not lacking any grace gift. You're not lacking any grace. Christian, you think you don't have enough in your life going for you? You have Jesus. What more could you be given? Says Paul. All the promises, I'll write later, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You have the fullness of God's grace given to you because God's Son is the fullness of God. God gives Himself to you in Jesus. What more could He give? You are a graced church, O Corinthians, and O new creation church. We have been graced by Jesus. So this graced church is a wealthy church. Wealthy in words and in knowledge. 
They don't have to wonder what God wants for them. He's given them his word. He's given them a knowledge of his son, Jesus. Now one really sad thing that we're going to find out as we continue to read our way through this letter is that the Christian knowledge that these Corinthian believers had, they were actually getting puffed up and very proud about their knowledge. Their heads were filled with words of prophecy and tongues and knowledge about God, but their hearts were lacking in love for God and for others. Whenever this happens in any church, that church is on the brink of death. Because if you know about God, and you know all the facts about God, you think you do anyway, but you don't love God and love others, then you don't really know God as you ought to know. You haven't really received the grace of the Lord Jesus. That said, the words and knowledge the Corinthians did have were gracious gifts from the Lord. They were not to be taken lightly. And so Paul thanks God that they do have knowledge about Jesus and true word about Jesus. It, but it shouldn't have become something they became proud of. They received it as a gift. A gracious gift. So when we come to um, later on in the letter, as we work our way through, we'll see though Paul praises them, thanks God for the grace, and for the grace that they have, that they've experienced knowledge and word. But he'll say later, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He'll say, I'll show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I do all kinds of good stuff, he says, if I... Give all I possess to the poor. Surrender my body that I might boast or that I might be burned. Some translations do different things there. Um, he says, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It doesn't keep record of wrong. So, so and even at the very beginning of this letter... Though even in Paul's thanks, you kind of can see by what he doesn't say, where he's going. Understand that? He doesn't thank God for the love in court. He thanks God that they've been enriched in every way with speech and knowledge. But man, they need to fan into flame the love of God. So that's where Paul's headed. But still he thanks God that they have knowledge and they have words about Jesus, and they have the grace of Jesus. God hasn't held back anything. He's given them his son. And so they're a grace church, as we are. And they are, second, a kept church. Verse 8. Look, look there with me, if you would. If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 8. He will also keep you firm, strong, to the end. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at all the ten things going wrong, and there's more really packed under those things with the Corinthian church, I, I think this, this must have been the only way that the Apostle Paul could sleep at night. Truly. 
Paul believed with all his heart that the Lord himself would keep everyone who truly trusted Jesus firm to the end so that they would be blameless when Jesus finally showed up. This didn't mean that the Corinthians could just throw their lives into autopilot and let the Spirit coast them into the kingdom. And this didn't mean that Paul could just forget about writing letters and praying for them. Oh, God's going to keep them. No, the Christian life, growing in the Christian life, standing firm, takes hard work. It takes effort. It takes struggle. And yet, as we work, as we labor to grow, the mystery of Christian growth is that God is working in us at the same time, giving us the strength and the desire to live for Him by the power of His Holy Spirit within us. And God uses a host of different means, things, people, His Word, to keep Christians pursuing Him. He uses, for example, this letter, the Apostle Paul, to exhort the Corinthians and to exhort us to keep following Jesus. Here's how Paul puts it in a different letter, the letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul expresses here this tension of God keeps you, O Christian, and yet you must Pursue him. And it's God who helps you pursue him. Okay, so here's Paul, Philippians 2, 12-13. He says to the Philippians, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act for his good pleasure. So there he says, Work out your salvation. Work hard. Work with reverent fear of the Lord. A reverent awe of Him that doesn't presume that you can just waltz into His presence with sin and a cavalier attitude like, ah, He'll forgive me, it's His job. No. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, as the psalmist said, because He is a consuming fire. And yet He is our Father who loves us and who bids us come through Christ. Work out your salvation. Because God is at work in you, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. Something has happened to you if you are a truster in Jesus. God is at work in you by the Spirit, helping you live and love like the Lord Jesus. Paul says something really similar in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. There Paul says this. He says, I worked harder than any of them. The other teachers. He's like, I worked harder as a, as a preacher. I mean, this sounds really kind of boastful, right? Paul's like, look, you might have seen other preachers, other teachers, other apostles. You might know some. You might see some in your midst. I worked harder than all of them. In his second letter to, well, his fourth letter to the Corinthians, um, but this we call 2 Corinthians, he goes into detail. I've been shipwrecked way more times. I've been beaten up way more times. I've been in jail way more times. You want to see hardship? Look at my life. He says, I've worked harder than all the other preachers, and yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And yet it wasn't me. It was the grace of God, the gift of God, Christ, with me. Christ in me. 
Christ for me, Christ through me, Christ over me, my captain, my king. He gets the honor for my blood and sweat and tears. And even though he'll look and say, well done, and give him a crown at the end of the day, Jesus crowns the very works that he gave us the oxygen and the strength to do as the creator of all. This, this is a mystery, okay, a tension that the Bible is very comfortable with. God keeps us, and yet we work. And if you struggle with that, that's okay. You're in good company. Christians have struggled with these things for thousands of years, and yet it's true. The biblical authors present us with both and say that both glory is true. true. I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God. Jesus' brother Jude can say this. He says, keep yourself in the love of God. And at the end of the letter, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Keep yourself now to the keeper of the sheep. And, and, and the Bible says both are true. And the reason that we keep going is because the Spirit helps us keep wanting. Jesus. If Jesus is in you, you will keep at it. To the end. We will make it. This doctrine is often called the perseverance of the saints. That though many professing Christians may walk away from Jesus and be lost, we may know some who used to claim the name of Christ and now care nothing for the Savior. No true child of God who has placed real faith in the real Jesus will ever completely walk away forever. They may walk away from a season, for a long season sometimes, but God will bring his sheep back and keep bringing them back. It may not be till the very end. They may walk for a long time, but God will bring the sheep back into the fold. He will keep them to the end when Jesus appears. God will not destroy his new creation. Whoever has become a new creation in Christ will make it. God finishes what he starts. As, as Paul can say to the Philippian church, he, Paul says, I am confident of this, O Philippians. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now you might be sitting here this morning and you might be thinking about people in your life who you feel like maybe are drifting. Jesus, will you keep them? Or maybe you're thinking about yourself. Will Jesus keep me from drifting? Will I make it firm on the last day? I'm worried about my own soul. I want to share this with you by way of encouragement. I hope you hear this as an encouragement. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, like, am I really saved? Am I really in? Is this the real thing? I want to encourage you that those people who are truly drifting from Jesus, who are not truly born again, they're not usually very concerned that they're drifting. They're not usually concerned what God or other Christians think about the state of their souls. They don't care anymore. It's actually a good sign of the Spirit's work in your life when you are worried about the state of your relationship with Jesus. He's saying to you, through the concern, through the wondering, 
He's saying to you, wake up, cling tighter, turn, turn. He loves you. He cares for you. You belong to him. The many warnings about drifting away in the Bible that we read, these serious warnings don't drift away. The book of Hebrews is filled with them. They are used by the Spirit to wake true believers up. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But for those who really do drift away after professing faith in Jesus, they merely respond to those warnings with, maybe I'm drifting, maybe I'm not. Or with anger and annoyance, cavalier attitude. They don't lay awake wrapped by fear that things aren't right between them and the Lord Jesus. They dive right into sin. They sin boldly. But the true believer is racked by conviction about sin, that things are not right, and he keeps running to the friend of sinners, the true refuge for Jesus. So two things. First, this Corinthian church was a graced church. They are rich in all the grace of God that he has given to them. They don't lack anything. They have all they need to love. They just need to open their hearts to the grace that they've been given in love like Jesus. Second, they are a kept church. The spirit of Jesus is keeping them firm and keeping those who truly are Jesus's from drifting forever away from him. And the third thing we'll see in these verses is that the grace church and the kept church, they're kept and graced by a faithful God who calls them. Look with me, if you would, at verse 9. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God, the faithful God who keeps his church, is the God who calls the church to be in fellowship, in a close relationship with the Lord Jesus. The idea that God is a faithful God is the idea that he is trustworthy. You can trust him. He's reliable. He's dependable. When someone is dependable, you know that they will show up when they said they will show up, at the time they said they would show up, and they will always do the things they said they were going to do to the best of their ability. I don't know a human alive who always shows up, always when they said they would be, and always does exactly what they said they would do every time because things happen. We are weak. We are fail, failing feeble creatures. We forget we're not strong enough. We don't have the capacity we think we do. We try to be faithful to the degree we can as humans, but God is always faithful. He always shows up. You can rely on his words. You can stake your hopes and your dreams, your eternity on his promise. He is faithful, trustworthy, reliable, this last point is the bedrock foundation for everything Paul is saying here. God is a faithful, trustworthy God. He's an immovable rock. You can build your life on that rock. And he poured out his grace richly to everyone who's trusted in Jesus. And he will keep firm. The faithful God will keep firm to the end. Even those who go through seasons of unfaithfulness. They've trusted themselves and their souls to their creators. Thousands of years ago, our faithful God made a promise to Adam and Eve, the first humans. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this faithful God said he will reverse the curse that Satan had brought upon creation. He will bring a snake crusher, Jesus, who will defeat the devil and who will bring God's blessing back. And eventually, God did. He kept that promise and hundreds of other promises about Jesus. Has God kept his word? Is he trustworthy? Is he reliable? Friends, because of Jesus, he is. If Jesus had not come, God would not be trustworthy. He would have been a liar. But Jesus has come. God is true, though every man be a liar. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He has kept his promise Jesus is the answer to all God's promises, past, present, and future. He is coming again. Jesus forever wipes away any question mark that can be placed over the idea that God is faithful. Does God really love me? He died for you. Of course he does. Will God really provide for me? Yes, he will. He gave you the greatest need that you need, which is not... A great life on earth. He gave you forgiveness. He gave you a hope and a future inheritance in heaven, no matter what. Jesus is the key to seeing God as a faithful God. And all who have come to know this faithful God, they have been called into fellowship into closest relationship with Jesus. This fellowship is the ultimate goal for your salvation. Why were you rescued from sin? Why did Jesus grace you with his whole life, death, and resurrection? Why have you received the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian? Ultimately, it's so that you would have a relationship with the Father through Jesus. We were created to know and to love our Creator. And through Jesus, we can know God. We can have fellowship with our Maker. Peter, the Apostle, the sent one of Jesus, just like Paul, he says this, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Jesus died to bring you to God, into a relationship, fellowship with the Father. Jesus died for your relationship with God. This is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not just saying yes to a bunch of facts or statistics about God, the Bible, Christian theology. Satan knows all the facts about the Bible. He probably knows the Bible better than you do. He's seen it for a lot longer. And yet he hates God. As the Apostle James writes, even the demons believe. They know the real king, and they tremble. No, being a Christian isn't just head knowledge. And being a Christian doesn't just mean simply doing good stuff with your life. Like, I'm a good, I'm a Christian, I go to church mostly, I, I treat people nice as much as I can. 
No, there's lots of people who don't care a bit about Jesus, that do really good things for which we can be thankful. No, being a Christian is ultimately about friendship with Jesus. Knowing Christ. Having a relationship with Him where we can talk to Him, hear from Him, His Word, and be His friend. We are friends of Christ. So as we close our time, I want to leave you with three applications. First, Paul has eyes that are trained to look for grace at work in people's lives. Remember, Paul is writing to perhaps the most messed up church in the history of churches. Maybe not, but you heard last week, this is a really, really troubled church. Okay, Drunk at the Lord's Supper, sleeping around with whoever they wanted, man has his father's wife and they're boasting they're still proud as a church they're the talk of the town do you know what those Christians don't know they're doing? they go to church, they get wasted they sleep around go to the idol sacrifice I mean this is craziness and Paul knowing all this is still looking for grace at work I think it's really easy for you and I to dwell on things that bother us about other people. Things that annoy us and offend us and concern us and even anger us. So when we think about others in our life, we dwell on the things that are that bother us about them. Just so... Mm, just they hurt other people when they do... Ugh. Those are the things, the things we dwell on, the things that rile us up, that stir us up, that evoke a response in our heart in some way. And friends, like I said, there are tons of things that Paul is about to get really passionate in his letter about with the Corinthians. And yet he starts his letter celebrating the grace of God at work in their lives. And so my prayer for you, as it's been my prayer this week, is that... This would be our knee-jerk reaction to everyone in our life who believes in Jesus. When you meet a fellow Christian, you interact with your fellow believers, what if the first thing that you did was look for God at work in their life and give thanks to God for that? Imagine the next time a brother or a sister in this church or in the family of Jesus, imagine the next time that somebody in the family of Jesus upsets you, annoys you, or hurts you. Imagine you were to pause and say, God, I thank you for that person. I thank you for the work of grace that I have seen in their life. I thank you that you care about them, that they care about your word. I thank you that they do want to follow Jesus, even if they're really blowing it right now, like I have done in my life. I thank you, God, that they have evidenced the fruit of their, the Spirit in their life in the past. I praise you that they're friends with Jesus, as I am. When we start our prayers for someone off like that, it helps us remember that God is not done with that person who has upset us. God's grace is at work in their life. God has a plan for them. 
Maybe you and your prayers for them or your confrontation of their sin, if you call them out, maybe that is part of that plan to help them grow, to help them keep pursuing Jesus. And finally, if the person you're upset with or concerned about is not a believer, then by all means, pray that they would experience the grace of Jesus as you have. And take the opportunity to thank God for his kindness in opening your eyes to your need for him. Lord, I pray that they would come to know the grace of the Savior that has helped me to not be selfish like they're being right now. Because apart from the grace of Jesus, I would be more selfish than they're being right now. And their selfishness is really driving me crazy. But God, oh, that they would come to know Jesus. I had this happened to me this week, and I'm not holding myself up as a role model here, okay? I, Landon and I went Monday morning, and we checked some trail cameras, and we were so excited about this one trail camera, three miles deep in the mountains, because I knew when I saw the sign there that it was going to be loaded with some of the bucks we're after, and we were so excited, and I walked up to it, opened it up, <coughs> car was gone, somebody stole it. How could they be so selfish? And I think I know who it was. It's like, we're on the same team. We're, what, what, what are you doing? And it's like, wait. Okay, this, this person doesn't know Jesus. And even if they did, I'm a selfish person too. It just looks different. I might not steal a trail camera hard, but I might sit on the couch while my wife is serving the family. Whatever. What does selfishness look like in my life? Oh God, I thank you for the grace that you've shown me and forgiving me. May they come to know that grace. Second thing, do you worry about people you love that won't make it spiritually? Do you worry? Lord, are they going to make it in the Christian life? Are my kids going to make it? Are my friends going to make it? I've seen so many people drift away from Jesus. How do we fight the fear? Can't control people. You can't make them change. No, we cling to this promise. The Lord knows who those who are His, and He will lose none of the sheep who the Father has given to Him. None of them. Jesus is the lost sheep chaser. And the lost sheep keeper. Listen to Jesus' words. John 10, 27 to 30. Hear these words. This is so important. John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus says this. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. And he's greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The good shepherd is not in the sheep losing business. His spirit keeps those who are truly born again. And he keeps them to the end. This gives us confidence for others that it will be sorted out in the end. If they're truly Jesus's, then he's going to keep them. He will do what it takes to deal with their sin, to discipline them. They might turn on their deathbed, but Jesus will keep them. 
that they are covered in the blood on the last day. If they're truly his. On bad days, he keeps us. On good days, he keeps us. Jesus keeps his sheep. The third thing, I want to close by reminding you that God has called you into fellowship with the Lord Jesus. This is what you, if you are a Christian today, you were saved for this reason. That you would have fellowship with the Father through his Son, Jesus. That you would come to know the pleasure in calling the creator of the universe, Daddy. He's your Father through Jesus. He loves you. That's why you were saved. So that you would come to be a part of his family. Not a rebel anymore. Jesus died to bring you to God. Because you were running from him. Jesus died to cleanse you. So that you could be a part of the new creation. Because sin can't enter there. One evil thought would destroy the new creation. Jesus died make you clean. Not perfectly now, but when he raises you, you will be perfect and blameless in his sight. Your sins were forgiven. Your eyes were opened because God wants a relationship with you. So, as we close, what can you do this week? What is something you can do this week to prioritize your friendship with Jesus? Maybe take a walk. And talk to him out loud. Cry out to him. If you don't pray out loud, I'm really serious about this. You're missing out. Cry out to God. Out loud. Take a walk. But nobody can see. This morning I was walking and praying out loud and walked by a neighbor and I, was, I didn't see her sitting on her porch and she probably thought I was crazy. But, okay. <laughs> Pastor talking to himself. <laughs> Talk to Jesus. Take a break from something you really enjoy. Create space to read his word. To hear from Jesus. Take some time this week to spend time with the family of Jesus. His blood-bought sheep. Maybe write. If you don't write very often, maybe write a prayer down to Jesus. Pour out your heart on paper. That might help you consolidate your thoughts. Soak in this, friends. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And the Father's arms are open because of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you have rescued your people. I thank you that you are a good shepherd, that you know your sheep, that you love your sheep, that you lay down your life for your sheep, for us. I thank you, God, that you have our best in mind. No matter what we go through on earth, there is a resurrection life in store for us where you will wipe away all the tears. Lord, I thank you for the relationship that we can have with you through Jesus. I pray that we, as your sheep, would treasure our friendship with Jesus above all other things. 
that we would see everything else in life that we enjoy as a means to the end of enjoying Jesus more. If we taste something good, it's a gift from Jesus. If we enjoy a good relationship, a good friendship, may it help us to grow in our appreciation of the best of friends, the Lord Jesus. I pray as a church that we would just be obsessed with Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.